In the middle of a technical halachic discussion, one of the greatest rabbis of the last century, known as the Chazun Ish, Rabbi Avram Yeshaya Karelitz, reflects on what it means to study the Rishonim and to study Rabbeinu Hananel in particular. He writes, Mashekosvu Harishonim Zal, de Divre Rabbeinu Hananel, him Divre Kabbalah. That which the Rishonim write about Rabbeinu Hananel, that all his words are words of tradition. Tzarech Perush, that requires some explanation. V'chilu Omar Rabbeinu Hananel davar misvara, rak mashakibel. Is it possible that Rabbeinu Hananel did not say a single thing from his own reasoning, and he only recited that which he received by tradition from his teachers? And his teacher and all of their teachers, did they only say what they had heard precisely word for word, what it was from their teachers? Is it possible that they only said what they had received as traditions and not anything from their own reasoning? All of them, all of the Rishonim, they had received what they received as traditions, and they innovated what they had innovated. As in, they made original contributions. And that's true of all of our rabbis, the Rishonim Zal. And we study the Rishonim, because the generations continuously decline, and somebody who's rich in the matters of the Rishonim, that has additional holiness, additional wisdom and knowledge. Any of the rabbis who are closer to the sages of the Gemara of the Talmud, we should consider them to be more likely to be bending towards truth. In this passage, the Chazonish reflects upon why we study the words of the Rishonim, why they're so important and valuable to us. Rabbeinu Hananel, in particular, being so much earlier, brings us closer to truth, to wisdom, and to holiness. But even when it comes to Rabbeinu Hananel, it doesn't mean that everything that he said was a tradition. Going back to the times of the Talmud, the sages, to the Mishnah, and all the way back to... Moshe Rabbeinu. That's not the case. Each of the Rishonim, they had traditions, but they also each made original contributions. And it's both of these that I want to explore in depth when it comes to all of the Rishonim, and in particular, Rabbeinu Hananel, the subject of this episode. What did he receive as traditions, and what did he contribute as an individual? Can we look into his writings and see who is this person and what kind of an impact did he make on Torah study? Who is Rabbeinu Hananel and how did he come up with his writings? What did he receive from his teachers and what did he invent? That's going to be the subject of this podcast, Rabbeinu Hananel, The Man and His Methods. Welcome to episode number three of the Rishonim podcast. This is now going to be the first real episode because the past two episodes were meant to be introductory episodes. I kept saying that they're going to be a little bit different than what I plan to do for the rest of the podcast. But now we can really delve into the subject of the podcast, the Rishonim. And we'll be starting with the first Rishon Rabbeinu Hananel. 
The truth is, I have to admit that these episodes, this episode, the next episode about Rabbeinu Hananel will also kind of be introductory episodes because since this is the first time that we're talking about a specific Rishon, so I'm going to want to elaborate a little bit more about some of the topics I plan to be exploring and about the Rishonim generally and my methods for what I'm doing here. But altogether, I plan for this and the next episode to be focused on Rabbeinu Hananel. And just one more podcasting note is that as episode number three, I'm still kind of working through this whole thing, figuring out exactly how to do a podcast and how to make myself not sound completely ridiculous. So hopefully you'll have a little bit of patience uh, as I try to figure out this whole thing. And with Hashem's help, I think that I'm already starting to get better with a bit of practice, and hopefully that will continue to improve, but I'm happy to hear any suggestions. Alright, so now let's get into it. In the case of Rabbeinu Hananel, I plan to do two episodes about him, and I plan to organize my discussion about Rabbeinu Hananel into four topics. First, I want to give a bit of a biography and talk about the man and his works, And then the second topic that I want to talk about in this episode are his methods. What are the sources that he uses for writing his books? What's his style and things like that? All that I plan to discuss in the next hour or so. And then in the next episode, I plan to dive even deeper into Rabbeinu Hananel's writings and share with you some of my favorite ones and discuss a few comments of Rabbeinu Hananel that I think show how much of an impact he has had on Torah scholarship and Judaism in the many centuries since his time. So in that sort of shifts into the fourth topic, which is Rabbeinu Hananel's legacy, how rabbinic scholars throughout the ages took his teachings and and how they looked up to Rabbeinu Hananel and his commentaries. So before we can actually talk about the man, Rabbeinu Hananel, I just want to put all of this information into context. Remember that Rabbeinu Hananel and his father, Reb Chushiel, who we mentioned last episode, lived very far away from me a whole millennium ago. Obviously, I was not there to meet them in person. Any information that we have about them is from traditions of sometimes questionable reliability, although every now and then, historians will dig up some other source. And so I actually want to talk for a minute about what my own sources are and where I'm getting any of this info that I'm telling you about Rabbeinu Hananel's biography. The truth is that there is so much scholarship on Rabbeinu Hananel and his writings that there's even scholarship about the scholarship. Like there are articles in written in the 21st century discussing who was writing articles about Rabbeinu Hananel in the 19th and 20th centuries. I think Rabbeinu Hananel was a particularly intriguing figure to the first modern historians of Judaism in the late 19th century. Number one, because he stood at this transition between the era of the Geonim and the era of the Rishonim. That's why we're starting with him as the first Rishon. But also in another way that we can't fully appreciate today, which is that Rabbeinu Hananel on the one hand, is quoted very widely by basically all of the Rishonim. He clearly left a very visible mark on Torah scholarship for hundreds of years. All the Rishonim clearly speak about him with extreme respect. This, I plan, as I mentioned, I plan for this to be a topic of the next episode about Rabbeinu Hananel. Yet, with all that, on the other hand, believe it or not, not a single part of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary was in print from the dawn of the printing press until the year 1868. That means that 
So many of the greatest Achronim, the Maharsha, the Shach, the Chasm Sofer, the Ksos, the Nesivis, the Vilna Gon, all the big names who are considered the greatest rabbis of the 17th and 18th centuries, they did not have Rabbeinu Hanal's commentary readily available to them. The only commentaries that were in existence were in manuscripts written by hand. Even though they had printed Gemaras, they had printed Rashis and Tosos and Rambam and Rashbas, etc. So I think that when the Jewish scholars began looking critically at the rabbinic tradition in what became known as the Haskalah movement or the Jewish Enlightenment in Europe, Rabbeinu Hananel was a fascinating subject for them because here's someone who we know he had a huge impact on halacha, but at the time, at least, they didn't have direct access to his works, or at least certainly not easily. So then, now if you look at who was involved in finally getting those first publications of Rabbeinu Hananel's works printed from manuscripts, and who was writing about Rabbeinu Hananel in the 19th and 20th centuries, you really get an amazing who's who of the scholars of the Jewish Enlightenment, as I was talking about, or just related figures who were rabbis who were willing to use more modern historical methods. Like, for example, the first major article to be written on Rabbeinu Hananel was written by a fascinating figure, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, or Shir, he wrote a few essays on these earlier shodim, Rav Sadiagon and the Aruch, etc., but his article on Rabbeinu Hananel, I think, is particularly impressive and had a particularly strong impact on Jewish scholarship. One of the first books to print parts of Rabbeinu Hananel's Perushim, Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary. It's not the first book exactly, but one of the first was a volume that was published in honor of Rabbi Ezreal Hildesheimer. And in there, there was a commentary on Makos, the first time that Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on Makos was published, and it was edited by a young Rabbi David Tzvi Hoffman. So if these names don't mean anything to you, I'm sorry, I'm not going to elaborate much because this is a podcast about the Rishonim and not about the... Uh, rabbis of the 19th century, but hopefully you'll believe me when I say that these were some of the more interesting rabbinic figures of the time. All of this is a really long-winded way of saying that there's just so much scholarship on Rabbeinu Hananel, and so I certainly have not read even half of it or anything close to that. So that reminds me that I should clarify why am I doing these podcasts in the first place? I'm very much not an expert on the Rishonim. I'm not a historian. I'm also very much not a Talmud Chacham. I'm not a scholar. I have not even read through all of Rabbi Nuchanan's writings. I probably wouldn't even understand all of them. I'm a total ignoramus. I'm just doing this podcast because I'm a guy who loves the Rishonim. And so that's why I'm doing this. I feel like nowadays people just make podcasts about their favorite movies or TV shows. So I want to make a podcast about my favorite things. Here, though, I should probably use the traditional magic word lahavdil to differentiate, meaning to say I do believe that my reading and discussing of the Rishonim is not like any old hobby. I believe it's a sacred hobby, one that fulfills a divine command to study the Torah and helps get us closer to God. But anyway, this is just a super long-winded way of saying that you shouldn't take me for some sort of expert or scholar. I just, I'm a guy who likes to learn Gemara with the Rishonim. And certainly when it comes to the primary sources, which in this case, like on the episode of Rabbeinu Hananel, is going to be mostly pieces from Rabbeinu Hananel's own commentary, I plan to put all that into a source sheet, which you'll be able to find either in a link 
with the show notes for this episode, wherever you find it, or you can find it at the website that I set up, which is at sites, S-I-T-E-S dot Google dot com slash view slash Rishonim, R-I-S-H-O-N-I-M. Now, to start off, and I mentioned that this is also going to be a little bit of an introductory episode of sorts, I want to talk a little bit about the historical context. So at least in this case, and this won't be true of all the Rishonim we discussed, but we can just start off with where we left off in the last episode. In the previous episode, we were talking about the last of the Geonim. So we were discussing Rav Hai Geon sometime in the late 900s. We spoke last episode about the city of Kairuan, a city with an important Jewish population on the North African coast in present-day Tunisia or Tunisia, where there was a great Talmud Chacham named Rav Yaakov Barnisim, who came from a long line of rabbinic scholars from that area. And Rabbi Yaakov Varnisim acted as the representative of the Geonim for much of Western North Africa, that whole region. And he was a local scholar there in Kairuan. And at some point, another Talmud Chacham showed up, coming from Italy, a scholar by the name of Rabbi Chushiel ben Elchanan. Some 200 years later, we have a written record of a tradition from Rabbi Avram ibn Daud that the way that Rabbi Chushiel got to Kairuan was that he was captured, along with three other scholars, by a naval commander from Muslim Spain. I mentioned that some historians cast doubt on this story, but the truth is there's really no hard evidence either way whether the story is true or not, but I'm actually hoping to mention one source that is particularly relevant to the question of how Rab Hushiel came to Kairuan from Italy. Anyway, so we have now two scholars living in the city of Kairuan, Rabbi Yaakov, who was a native, the Italian immigrant Rav Hushiel, and the reason why I'm talking about these two people is because both of them had a son, not together obviously, each of them independently had sons, who are considered among the first generation of Rishonim. Rabbi Yaakov had a son named Nisim, and I hope to talk about him in future episodes. And the subject of today's episode is Rabbi Chushiel's son, Rabbeinu Hananel. And just to mention, maybe I should have said this first, the reason why we're starting with these people is because, according to the Rishonim themselves, this is where the era of the Rishonim begins. This is according to the Meiri's account of rabbinic history that he wrote as an introduction to Pirkei Avos. And the truth is, his source is probably, in that whole section, is probably Rabbi Avram ibn Daud Sefer HaKabalo that we were talking about extensively the previous episode. Both of them say that after the era of the Geonim, there were three people who make up the first generation of, they call them Rabbanim, rabbis who are not Geonim, they are Rishonim, Rabbi Nuchananel, Rav Nisim, and Rav Shmuel Hanagid of Spain, who I hope to have another episode about in the future. And since we've been talking so much about the city of Kairuan because of their important correspondence with the Geonim of Babylonia, I think it makes sense to start here. So just to situate us, to say where is here or when is here, so we don't actually know the exact years of Rabbeinu Hananel's birth and death, but we know that he died in the 1050s. He was 
certainly deceased by the end of the year 1058, and we also know that he was in his 70s or 80s or so when he passed away. So that's ballpark when we're talking the very beginning of the 11th century. My big fun fact about Rabbeinu Hananel, which to me is so indicative about how little we know about the Rishonim's biographies, about their personal lives, is that Rabbeinu Hananel's given name might not have been Hananel. Now, this is going to take uh, some time to explain, so bear with me here. We spoke about this tradition, first recorded by Rabbi Avram ibn Daud, that Rabbi Hushiel came to Kairuan from Italy because he was one of four rabbis traveling from Italy who were captured by the Spanish king's pirates, and that Rabbi Hushiel himself was ransomed by the Jewish city of Kairuan. And I mentioned that some historians have doubted this story, and now I'll tell you why. Here and there... I've made some brief references to the Cairo Geniza, which is a huge treasure trove of documents that was sitting in a storage room of an ancient shul in Fustad, in old Cairo in Egypt. And it was in the late 19th century that it came to the attention of European scholars of Jewish history, who discovered, so to speak, and I say that in quotation marks, because there were many members of the community who knew about this the whole time, but they discovered that these documents include lots and lots of manuscripts that span a huge time period and geographic location. I'll, I'll quote the line from Wikipedia that the Cairo Geniza comprises the largest and most diverse collection of medieval manuscripts in the world. These manuscripts were extremely, extremely valuable. You can really cannot overstate it for historical research because we can look at letters and marriage documents and the like and get a glimpse of what life was really like from contemporary sources. But it was also an incredible source for Torah scholarship because we found so many svarim or parts of svarim that had been lost for centuries in this Cairo Geniza. So one of the foremost scholars in bringing this Geniza to the attention of other Jewish historians was Rabbi Solomon Schechter, for whom many uh, conservative institutions are named today. Among his many discoveries in the Geniza, and this one is that he was so, one that he was so excited about that he devoted an entire article to it, which out of some 200,000 letters, that's really saying something, is a letter that was written by someone named Rabbi Hushiel ben Elchanan of Keruan, dated from the time period that we're talking about, where he writes to someone named Reb Shemaria ben Elchanan in Egypt, who is another one of the people who is identified as one of the four captives. So Rabbi Hushiel writes in this letter that he's very sorry that he hasn't come to visit Reb Shemaria yet, but he was staying in Kairuan because he was convinced by the members of the community there to stay to be their rabbinic leader. And so that's what he's doing there in Kairuan, and he's eagerly awaiting the arrival of his son, who it sounds like will be joining his father for a similar reason, to either learn or continue to spread Torah in the city of Kairuan. So the reason why this letter, some historians have thought, casts doubt on the story of Rabbi Avram ibn Daud is because it does kind of sound like Rabbi Hushiel came to Kairuan from Italy of his own volition, that it was a trip that he made willingly and yet he wasn't captured. But very curiously, he also mentions that his son's name is El Hanan, not Hananel. 
So there are some historians who wanted to claim that maybe there were two Rabbi Hushiels who lived in Kairuan during this time period, both of whom came from Italy, both of whom were really great scholars. But honestly, it's hard to imagine that they were two Hushiels ben Elchanons who had this exact same life story. So I think it's a lot more likely that this really is the same person. But in that case, who's the son that he's talking about? So, of course, it's certainly possible that Rav Hushiel had two sons, one of them named Elchanan and one of them named Hananel, but those two names are really similar to each other. So I think it's very plausible, and there are many historians who believe that this is the case, that Rav Hushiel's son, who he named Elchanan, at some point when he came to Italy in his adulthood, he started going by the name Hananel. That might sound a little bit crazy to us today. I mean, if you learn, like, Hilchos Gittin, for example, the laws of divorce documents, you see that halacha makes a really big deal about getting people's names down correctly. But I think that there were many times and places where names were a little bit more flexible. Like, consider in Tanakh, for example, the king of Yehuda who was exiled before Yushalayim was destroyed. What was, what was his name? So sometimes his name is Yechonia, and sometimes it's Yehoyachin. The part of his name, which is the name of Hashem, the yud Hey, sometimes that's in front of his name, and sometimes it's at the end of his name. It's the same thing with Hananel and Elchanan. It's the same name with the two parts flipped. So it seems to me like this is just the same person who his father called him Elchanan, even though we call him Rabbeinu Hananel. To me, this is just such a great fun fact, because it just shows how little we know about the Rishonim. In this case, the very first of the Rishonim, we don't even know what was his name that was given to him, presumably at his uh, bris milah. We do know it's clear that once he is an adult, that his contemporaries called him Rabbeinu Hananel, and obviously that is what I will be calling him too, it's a real live example of an old joke about the Iliad and the Odyssey that they weren't really written by Homer, you know, the Greek poet. They were written by some other Greek poet named Homer. The point of the joke is that the only thing we really know or care about Homer is, is that he wrote these poems. So here too, the big point about Rabbeinu Hananel is that he wrote the commentary of Rabbeinu Hananel. That's really what we care about, whatever his father may have named him. What else can we say definitively for sure about the life of Rabbeinu Hananel? Not much. Historians debate questions like, was he born in Italy, as some of these letters imply, or was he born in Kairuan, as Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud implies? What language did he speak at home? How good was his Arabic? Did he really have nine daughters and no sons, which is something mentioned by Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud? Historians debate these kinds of questions we don't really know 100% one way or the other. But as I keep saying throughout this whole series, I'm much more interested in Rabbeinu Hananel's Torah scholarship than I'm interested in his daughters, even though I'm sure they were very fine, upstanding ladies. One interesting biographical question about Rabbeinu Hananel, which I won't discuss right now, but I want to bring it up as something that we will talk about in the next half of the episode, is where was Rabbeinu Hananel educated? Did he learn most of his Torah from the Tamil Chachamim who were living in Italy, where he might have lived as a boy? Or did he learn from scholars of Kairuan? Or did he learn entirely from his Italian father? Did he manage to travel to Babylonia to learn from the Gaonim in person, to learn from Rav Ha'igon? These kinds of questions, I think, are interesting because they get at the question of what was Rabbeinu Hananel's source for a lot of what he says. 
As far as I know, Rabbeinu Hananel doesn't tell us the answer to that question of where he received his primary education in any of his writings that are available to us. Some of the Rishonim mention that Rabbeinu Hananel learned personally with Rav Haigon, but the Chida, that's Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who I'll also probably be mentioning a lot throughout this entire podcast because he was an 18th century rabbi who wrote an amazing encyclopedia documenting everything that was known about all the rabbis that came before him, including a lot of the Rishonim, called Shem Hagadolim. So in his encyclopedia in Shem Hagadolim, on the entry for Rabbeinu Hananel, he says that it's very likely that when Rishonim mentioned that Rabbeinu Hanana learned from Rav Hai, he actually learned from Rav Hai's books or letters, but not from Rav Hai directly. That we don't necessarily have evidence from Rabbeinu Hanana himself that he traveled to or was present in the yeshivas of Babylonia. As I mentioned, we'll come back to this question in the second half of the podcast episode. One thing that maybe we can answer a little bit more definitively, or at least give some sort of range of timing, is when Rabbeinu Hananel wrote his books. Here and there, Rabbeinu Hananel gives us a hint to what year it was when he was writing a certain passage. For example, in his commentary to Mesecha Shabbos, Daf Kuf Tesvav, or 115b, he quotes a teaching from Rav Hai Gon, May he live long and prosper. Okay, obviously he doesn't use that exact phrase, but it's something very close to it, indicating that Rav Haigon is clearly alive at this time of his writing. And so since we know when Rav Haigon passed away, it must be that Rabbi Nuchananel was writing this passage before the year 1038, because we know that Rav Haigon died during the Pesach of that year. And there are a few other references here and there to years I'll mention one explicit one in the Gemara Avodah where the Gemara there has a whole discussion about calculating the years for various events, and Rabbeinu Hananel says to help with the calculation, he points out that the current year is Arba Alafim Tov Tov Yud Gimel, which is 4,813, which in our calendar system is equivalent to the year 1053. And I find this date to be pretty interesting because it means, number one, that since we have an earlier marker of 1038 from when Rav Hai Gon was alive, that means that Rabbi Nuchanana was working on his commentaries for a minimum of 15 years, but of course it could have been much longer than that. It's also interesting this year is interesting because it's very close to the end of Rabbeinu Hananel's life. We know that by the end of the year 1058, he had passed away. And so we see that he's working on this commentary into his old age. The fact that in only of those few cases where we have a date for the writing of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary is a date that's very close to the end of his life, might also indicate that he kept working on his commentary for as long as he could, even if he perhaps had already published or publicized an earlier version. That maybe throughout his life, he never really considered his commentaries to be completed. This relates to a very common feature among the Rishonim and their works, I'm sure we'll come across it again and again, what Professor Yisrael Tashima calls the open book phenomenon, that almost all of the Rishonim were constantly revising, editing, and updating their works throughout their lives. And this took many different forms. Sometimes the Rishonim would produce multiple editions that are totally different one from the other, like the Rashba, for example, seems to have done this for a few Masechtas, that whenever the yeshiva cycle would, would get to the same Masechta again, he would write a totally new commentary. But sometimes it wasn't that a Rishon would write a whole new edition, they would just make small edits here and there 
constantly and throughout their lives, fixing passages, adding in pieces here and there. We know that this is something that the Rambam did for his commentaries. The Ramban is well known for this because he actually writes in a few places in his commentary on the Torah that he wrote one thing while he was in Spain, but then when he got to the lands of Israel, he saw, for example, the location of Rachel's burial place and changed his commentary accordingly. Remember that we're talking about a time before the printing press. The Rishonim didn't have the same idea of what it means to publish a book the way that things are today. So coming back to Rabbeinu Hananel, there's this question, if he was writing, updating his commentary all the way till the end of his life, maybe did he write multiple versions of his commentary to the Gemara? I don't think that there is a major scholarly consensus to answer this question, but I do know that there is a whole doctoral dissertation by someone named Jay Ravner at JTS who shows that Rabbeinu Hananel definitely wrote two versions of his commentary to Bava Metzia, or at least parts of Mesechus Bava Metzia. He even suggests maybe there was even a third version, and that would explain some discrepancies that we have in a lot of the commentaries of Rabbeinu Hananel between some editions and some manuscripts that were found in the Geniza. But when it comes to other Mesechtas, it's really hard to know for sure. So I keep referencing Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on the Talmud, that Rabbeinu Hananel was the first Rishon to write a comprehensive commentary on the Talmud, but I think we have to get into this question in a little bit more detail. What exactly did Rabbeinu Hananel write? We have his commentary for big chunks of the Talmud, but when it comes to the rest of the Talmud Bavli, unfortunately, we don't know for sure exactly what the scope was of all of his writings. And sadly, this is going to be true for a lot of the Rishonim. We never know for sure how many of their writings have actually come down to us over the course of history. So to try to get at this question in a little bit more detail, I want to read through the list of all the manuscripts identified from Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, starting with those in the Oxford Bodleian Library. Ah, no, I'm just kidding. That would be so boring. Instead, I'll just say... Big picture, the Me'iri says that Rabbeinu Hananel wrote a commentary to three Siddharim of Shas, which is Moed, Nashim, Nizikin. To be more precise, usually when the, when the Rishonim refer to three Siddharim that are normally studied in their yeshivas, when they say Moed, Nashim, Nizikin, they also mean to include Brachos, which is part of Zroim, Chulin, which is part of Kodshim, and Nida, which is part of Taros, and they also usually exclude some of the Mesechtas in the three Siddharim of Moed, Nashim, Nizikin that are less common, such as Nazir, Sota, Horios, and often Nidarim as well. And so we can't be so precise about which of those Mesechtas Rabbeinu Hananel actually wrote a commentary to. And in fact, there are other versions of that same line in the Me'iri in his introduction to Pirkei Avos, which actually says that Rabbeinu Hananel wrote a commentary to the entire Talmud. I mentioned earlier that many of the greatest achronim did not have an easy access to Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary because it was not printed until the latter half of the 19th century. But today, thank God and thanks to Mrs. Devorah Ram and her sons, most of these commentaries can be found on the side of the now standard Vilna Shas that was first published in Vilna, of course, in the 1880s. So for many Mesechtas, you open up your standard Gemara, and you'll find Rabbeinu Hananel all the way at the end of the page. And in the past few decades, more material based on more manuscripts, 
especially those discovered in the Cairo Geniza, have been published, some by Mosetter of Cook, but even more from a subsidiary of Vagshul Publishing called Lev Sameach. So obviously, I was just kidding when I said that I'm going to read through a list of manuscripts, but the truth is, I still haven't figured out a great way to discuss the bibliographies of the Rishonim without getting bored of just reading off a list of Mesechtas. I think that it would be useful to talk about a list of where to find the best editions of Rabbi Hananel's commentary to each Mesechta. That's good information. Like, for example, I'm recording this when Daf Yomi is learning Mesechtas Gittin. Rabbi Hananel clearly wrote a commentary to Mesechtas Gittin. He's quoted by the Rush many times throughout the Mesechta in many important halachic rulings. But my guess is that if you were to go walk into any traditional yeshiva and go over to a bunch of people and ask them, where can I find Rabbi Hananel's commentary to Gittin? Because it's not actually published there in the standard Vilna Shas on the side of the page. My guess is that four out of five yeshiva students will not know the answer to where I could find Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary. So that's what I mean by a bibliography. I think that could be useful info, but it's not great for podcast format. So at some point, I'm hoping to write up a list for all the Rishonim that I cover on the podcast and put it up on the website or something to make a resource for anyone willing to check out where to find the best editions or at least, you know, what editions are available for Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on any particular Mesechta. I'll give, I want to at least give a special shout out to one of my favorite websites on the internet, alhatorah.org, where I know for the past couple of years, they've been working on producing a more polished version of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary. Most of it is still in the works, but at the time that I'm recording this podcast, I think they at least have Sanhedrin and Makos out. On their website. And by the way, the answer to that question about where's Rabbeinu Hananel to Mesechas Gittin, as far as I know, the best version can be found in the back of the Otsar Hagaonim to Mesechas Gittin, where the author of Otsar Hagaonim, we didn't talk about the Gaonim, so that's a whole nother story, but the author there put a lot of the commentary of Rabbeinu Hananel that he was able to find in those volumes of Otsar Hagaonim. So even though I think that listing each commentary of Rabbi Hananel on the Talmud would be pretty boring, there are some points I want to mention basically because I just want an opportunity to complain about a couple things. And I know listening to other people complaining is really fun. I know it's not really complaining. I just want to point out some possible errors, prevent mistakes by people using various editions of Rabbi Hananel. So first of all, the Rabbi Hananel that's published in the standard Vilna Gemara on Meseches Horios is pretty clearly not by Rabbeinu Hananel. It's by someone a little bit later. And that's also probably true of another book. It's not published together with the Vilna Shas, but you may have seen in some yeshiva libraries and such that says on the cover, Perush Rabbeinu Hananel for Meseches Zvachim. That is also almost certainly not written by Rabbeinu Hananel. That's, I think, the consensus of most of the scholars that I've seen talk about this, that Rabbeinu Hananel probably did not write a commentary to either Horius or Zvachim, despite what's been published under his name. Another Mesechta that I want to have a minor complaint about is Meseches Brachos. So you might have seen some versions of the Gemara of Meseches Brachos, which has Rabbeinu Hananel on the side, but it's not in all Gemaras that you might find. So what's the deal with that? I know when I was a teenage boy learning in yeshiva, and I would imagine it's still this way, there is always a huge fight. Which type of the new Gemaras is the better Gemara? Usually the two reigning champions are the Vilna Chadash versus the Ozva Hadar. So I would certainly never want to stick my head between these two warring factions. I don't want to be dragged off in the night for picking the wrong side. 
So I'm not going to tell you which one is the best. But I just want to say that neither of these, not the Vilna Chadash or the Uzva Hadar, have Rabbeinu Hananel on Brachos. The only one that does is the set of Shas, the set of Talmud Bavli that's published by Vagshal, which it says Mahaduras Naharda on the bottom of the front cover. That edition of Shas includes Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on Meseches Brachos. So what's the deal here? The answer is, actually, we don't have a full manuscript of Rabbeinu Hananel on Brachos, but the Vagshal Publishing Company, which is the one that prints this Shas, came out almost 30 years ago around with a volume of Rabbeinu Hananel on Brachos, edited by Rabbi David Metzger, a standalone volume that also includes some other things. And Rabbi David Metzger, he compiled pieces quotations from Rabbeinu Hananel from a whole bunch of different sources. There were a few fragments from the Geniza, but mostly from quotations in other Rishonim, like the Aruch, the Sefer Haner, and altogether he built up sort of like a restoration of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on Brachos. And overall, I think he did a great job. If you actually buy the Vagshal edition of Rabbeinu Hananel, that standalone, it's this red volume, on Meseches Brachos, then in the footnotes you can see where all the various pieces come from and how Rav Metzger stitched it all together. Like, what passage comes from a manuscript? What's a quote from the Aruch? What is originally a quote in the Or Zerua, but the editor decided to change around all the words? Things like that. He tells you all that in the footnotes. And because Vakshal had the rights to this Sefer of Rabbeinu Hananel, they decided to stick it into the side of the Gemara on Meseches Brachos, and they wrote... Rabbeinu Hananel, on the top. And this version of Gemara, by the way, is the one that's very popular on the internet. Like, this is the edition that you'll find if you go to hebrewbooks.org slash shas and many similar websites. So that's why now this edition of Rabbeinu Hananel on Brachos is pretty easy to find. But I don't know, this has always kind of bothered me. If you just see the commentary on the side of the page and you see that it says Rabbeinu Hananel on the top, you wouldn't realize that it's actually the result of a restoration work. And it's not like Rabbeinu Hananel on other Masechtas. I just wish that they had made that clear on the page. But enough of my complaining. Really, I'm very happy that it exists and happy that we have easy access to it, that today we have so much material from Rabbeinu Hananel to learn from, from, as I mentioned, way more than any of the Achronim had from him until today. Before moving on to discuss what's actually written in these great books that Rabbeinu Hananel wrote, I want to discuss one more of these books, which is Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on the Chumash, on the Torah. And here we come to a bit of a mystery. Today, you can find a book, it's a sefer called Perushe Rabbeinu Hananel al HaTorah, the commentary of Rabbeinu Hananel on the Torah, published by Mossad Harav Kook and edited by Rabbi Chaim Shevel, who's more well known for editing the Mossad Harav Kook edition of the Ramban's commentary, that pistachio-colored two-volume set that's very popular. But Rabbi Shevel also was involved in a lot of other Rishonim, who was involved in the publication of a lot of stuff, and one of them is this commentary of Rabbeinu Hananel on the Torah. The actual book, the standalone volume of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, is not as popular as the Ramban. It's not the kind of thing that you'd see in every Orthodox synagogue. But what is very popular is Mosad Rav Kook also publishes a Chumash with commentaries of the Rishonim called the Torah Chaim Chumash. It includes about a dozen commentaries of the Rishonim, and among those commentaries is this perush, this commentary of Rabbeinu Hananel. 
But now it's time for me to complain again, I guess. I'm not totally done with complaining. That just like with Vagshul's publication of Rabbeinu Hananel on Mesechus Brachus, this commentary of Rabbeinu Hananel doesn't come from a manuscript or anything like that that was preserved through the generations from the Rishonim. As far as we know, nobody has seen Rabbeinu Hananel's actual commentary on the Torah for many hundreds of years. But what we do know is that Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary is quoted by several Spanish rabbis in particular, the Ramban, his student the Rashba, and especially the Rashba students Rabbeinu Bachaye, Rabbi Yeshua ibn Shuib, a few others here and there, all together, Rabbeinu Hananel is quoted by these Rishonim some 70-ish times. And so what Rabbi Shavel did was he collected all of these quote, quotations from Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, and he made a book out of it, calling it Rabbeinu Hananel al HaTorah. But here's the mystery, and for many years I was hoping to really research this more fully and maybe write an article about it, which is that if you go passage by passage and compare Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, meaning those quotations of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary in the Rishonim, especially in Rabbeinu Bachaye, if you compare that to the commentaries of the Geonim of Rav Sadia Gon, wherever we have the commentary of Rav Sadia Gon, which that itself is also a whole long story, we probably do not have a complete version, but where you can compare the two, they are almost exactly the same. And then many of the other passages that don't line up with the commentary of Rosadigon, another 10-15% or so, on other sections of the Torah, it seems like it's almost exactly the same as the commentary that we have from one of the later Gonim, Rav Shmuel ben Chofni Gon, I mentioned him as he's Rav Hai Gon's father-in-law, matches up very, very closely with whatever is left from Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, with maybe like three exceptions that don't seem to have a parallel in the Gonim. Now, I should mention, you can't do an exact word-by-word -word comparison, because these Gonim wrote their commentaries in Arabic, and Rabbeinu Hananel, all the quotations that we have from him at least, are from books written in Hebrew. But the similarities between these commentaries led some scholars to doubt that maybe there really was no Rabbeinu Hananel on the Torah. Maybe somehow there was just a collection of Geonic commentaries that was translated into Hebrew, and when it traveled from North Africa to Spain, the commentary became associated with Rabbeinu Hananel somehow. Who, by the way, it's not so crazy because, as far as we know, Rabbeinu Hananel was one of the only rabbis living in a predominantly Arab Arabic-speaking country to write his Sfarim in Hebrew. Almost all the others, like the Geonim, when they wrote their books, or we'll talk about some of the other Rishonim, until the Ibn Ezra, almost all of them were writing their books in Arabic. So this was something published by scholars here and there. Rabbi Shavel, who was the editor, the compiler of Rabbeinu Hanana's commentary, wrote somewhat of an angry rebuttal to this theory, like, Chas v'shalom, heaven forbid, how could you possibly say that the Ramban was mistaken when he quotes Rabbeinu Hanana, that he got the source of the commentary incorrect? Personally, I think that there are still some loose ends here. I kind of have a lot to say about this, actually, but I'm going to leave it here. Only to end this topic by saying that if there is some theoretical person listening to this podcast and was interested in doing a doctoral dissertation on Rabbeinu Hananel, but you look at all the scholarship and say, what more could there possibly be to write about? I think investigating Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on the Torah would make a really great and not so difficult thesis project. And if you write that, please send it to me. I'd love to see it.
Alright, now I think we've spoken enough about Rabbeinu Hananel's biography. I think if he were here, he would much rather us be talking about his Torah. So let's do that. That's what we'll be devoting the rest of this episode and Ba'ezra Hashem another episode as well to talking about the methods and teachings of this great man. And we'll be focusing on his commentaries to the Gemara, his Talmudic commentaries. In the first episode of this podcast, the background episode, the intro, I spoke about the Gemara, and just an explanation to describe what it is, I mentioned that the Gemara clearly requires commentary. It's missing some essential features that make it a text that's hard and almost impossible to study directly without either a teacher or some study tools, some guides. In order to help organize these Concepts, I like to categorize these missing features, these aspects that the Gemara is missing, that the commentaries come to address, into three categories. And this is just a thing I made up, I'm sure. Actual Tamir Chachamim, or professionals who teach Gemara for a living, have a much better way of thinking about this. But this is how I like to categorize the commentaries of Rishonim, and that's how I'm going to organize this episode. So I mentioned that the Gemara is missing Three things that start with the letter C. It's missing context, cohesiveness, and conclusions. And Rabbeinu Hananel, in his commentary, comes to provide all of these three things. He's going to give the Gemara context. And by that I mean super broadly, what is the Gemara saying? Straight up, what does it mean? He's going to give the Gemara cohesiveness. How do you put different statements of the sages together to cohere into one consistent whole? And thirdly, maybe even primarily, he gives the Gemara conclusions. He shows how you get from the discussion of, in the Gemara to the bottom line, to what is the halacha, how is a person supposed to conduct themselves after reading this passage of Gemara, what does it imply for actual Jewish practice. And before I go on to discuss these things in detail, I want to point out that that last thing Providing the Gemara with conclusions seems to be what Rabbeinu Hananel thinks is the primary goal of studying Talmud, of studying Gemara. He says in his commentary to the Gemara in Bav Metziah, Daflamid Gimel, where the Gemara there differentiates between studying Mikra, studying the words of the Bible, studying Mishnah, and studying Talmud. Rabbeinu Hananel defines what does that mean, Talmud, what does it mean? It means, More umevayer ha-mitzvos ketikonon. It's the teaching and elaboration of the commandments as appropriate, umagid halacha lemaisa, and the saying over of practical halacha. Practically speaking, what does the Gemara mean that one should do? And I think that there's evidence that Rabbeinu Hananel understood that this was so important because at many times in the Gemara it's clear that the sages understood the Torah is so valuable because of how it changes a person's behavior. This is most forcefully seen in a Gemara Avodizara Daf Yudzayin Amad Bez, where the Gemara has some harsh things to say about somebody who only learns Torah but does not put it in practice. And there, Rabbeinu Hananel throws in that when he's learning Torah, the proper way to learn Torah is Lahotzi Hadin Laamito, to extract the law correctly from the discussion of the Gemara, from the Torah. And that is the bridge that allows a person to go from learning Torah to actually practicing what it says. And I hope to come back to this briefly at the end of this first episode on Rabbeinu Hananel. 
But before we do that, and before I elaborate in more depth about how Rabbi Nuchananel provides context, cohesiveness, and conclusions, what are his methods and his style, before we get to all that, we actually have to talk about, even before we talk about the context, we have to talk about the text, the actual words of the Gemara. Now you might be thinking, what do you mean? The words of the Gemara are the ones that are printed right there on the page. But actually, if you're familiar with learning Gemara, you know that it's not so simple. Very often, we're not actually sure what the correct edition of the Gemara is. There are different versions, different girsos, we call them, of the Gemara's text, different textual variations, and we're not actually sure which is the correct one, which is the version that was actually stated by the Amoraim. So this is something that was so, so important for so many of the Rishonim that they wanted to make sure first and foremost, before they even can comment on the text, is to make sure they have a text, that they have the true and correct words of the Amoraim. I want to talk more about this when we get to the Rishonim of Ashkenaz. Bezrus Hashem, I hope to have another season for the Rishonim of Ashkenaz, and that's something that the early Rishonim there were very, very concerned with. But here I just mentioned Rabbeinu Hanal's role, that he is especially important, before we even talk about how he provides context for the Gemara, is that he's very important in establishing the correct text itself. Especially because wherever Rabbeinu Hananel makes reference to different textual variations in the version of the Gemara, it's clear that he's not correcting any typos based on his own logic, that he thinks that because the way the Gemara is flowing, that one word that he sees in his Gemara really should be a different word. Wherever he talks about this, he hints to the fact that he himself had perfectly correct texts of the Gemara that came directly from the Babylonian yeshivas. One of the more explicit Cases where he says this is in his commentary to Brachos, Daphnun Tesman Bays, 59b. And of course, whenever I'm quoting his commentary on Brachos, I'm quoting from that Vagshal edition that I mentioned earlier. I'm just not so happy about how they titled it on the page, but I'm very happy that they published it. So there's one place that he writes in his commentary to Brachos, Zo Hashmua Meshubeshasi Benuschaos, that he's seen many mistaken versions of this passage. Aval Anu Noschanuha. But we textualize it, I guess is the way to translate that word. It's that he has the right text. So he had this unbroken chain that he claims of what is exactly the right text of the Gemara. This was something that, as I mentioned, was so important to the Rishonim, especially Rabbeinu Tam, who is living in faraway France, but still felt that the versions of the Gemara of Rabbeinu Hananel were most authentic. But unfortunately, today, a thousand years later, this is not super useful for us, because even if Rabbeinu Hananel himself was very precise with his wording, we don't have Rabbeinu Hananel's autographed copy of his commentary. We have copies of copies of copies, and it's very possible that errors have crept in over the generations. Later editors were not always so careful. We don't have a well-established text of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, so we can't really use that for sure, to know what his text of the Gemara was. But I just want to throw it out there as something that the Rishonim themselves acknowledge Rabbeinu Hananel as being very important to them. So now that we've spoken a little bit about how Rabbeinu Hananel is important just for establishing the text of the Gemara, now we can talk about what his commentary really comes to accomplish, what he intended to accomplish, 
how his commentary fills in these three gaps of providing the Talmud with context, cohesiveness, and conclusions. So first, when I talk about context, I mean very broadly, but also, but also very simply, what is the Gemara actually saying? What is the background that's necessary to understand the actual words of the Gemara? And in order to appreciate Rabbeinu Hananel's providing context for the Gemara, and we can imagine as the first commentator, Rabbeinu Hananel sort of has a lot of work to do just to explain what's going on. But in order to appreciate this, I want to compare Rabbeinu Hananel to Rashi and the Rif, even though, of course, we have not had episodes about Rashi or the Rif yet, and I certainly plan to. But I want to just talk briefly about them because I think they provide a good foil to how Rabbeinu Hananel fits nicely in between the two of them. In the first episode, when I talked about how the Gemara is missing context, the example that I gave was from the first line of Meseches Erevin, that first Mishnah, which states that something on a particular kind of street, according to the first opinion in the Mishnah, if it's taller than 20 Amos, has to be lowered. But... Somewhat strangely, the Mishnah actually does not tell you the object of this line in the Mishnah. What is it that needs to be lowered if it's taller than 20 Amos, according to that first opinion? The Mishnah actually doesn't say. It's missing that crucial noun. And if you decided to keep struggling your way through the Gemara, I think you'd figure it out eventually. But here, Rashi comes in, provides you with the context that you need to know, tells you right away on that first line, the Mishnah is talking about either a Lechi or a Korah, a plank or a crossbeam that serves to divide your street from the main thoroughfare, the rabbis say that if it's taller than 20 amos, it has to be lowered. Rashi is there to provide any context you might need for the Gemara. He's not there for absolute beginners, like he doesn't translate every single word into French, like Art Scroll. But Rashi assumes that you only know maybe the most common few hundred words that the Gemara uses. You know some of the basics of Judaism, like... Rashi probably assumes that you know that matzah is unleavened bread that's eaten on Pesach. But basically everything beyond that, Rashi is there to hold your hand and explain to you what is the background and the context for the Mishnah and the Gemara. Now if you go to that same Mishnah in Erevin, and you look at Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, Rabbeinu Hananel doesn't tell you this. He doesn't tell you what the Mishnah is talking about. He expects a little bit more from you. He expects that if you're learning Mesechus Erevin, you know the basics of what the Mishnayos mean. When it comes to background knowledge, Rabbi Nuchananel doesn't provide that much, except when it's some background knowledge that you probably wouldn't have figured out from learning the Mishnah of the particular Mesechta or from continuing to read on the Gemara. But I think if you're learning Meseches Erevin, Rabbi Nuchananel assumes that you've already understood all of the Mishnah from at least that parak. He will provide some explanation of the background, like one example, maybe this isn't the best example, but one example I thought of was where something is mentioned very tangentially, and so Rabbeinu Hananel explains what that concept means. An example is in his commentary to Chagiga, Daf Chavdalad, the Mishnah mentions something called Hechsher Zeroim, that vegetables, which the sages understand to refer to any food, needs to be finished in some way before it will become Tameh. It needs to be fit to become Tameh. And usually when the Gemara mentions this concept, which is actually the subject of an entire Mesechta in Seder Taros, usually when the Gemara mentions this concept, it brings the Pasuk that tells you how we learn the Halacha of Hechsher Zeroim, which is how do foods become fit to 
contract Tuma, it's by getting wet. And usually the Gemara will bring the Pasuk that actually teaches this to us. In Mesechet Chagiga, Dav Chavdalad, it's only mentioned tangentially, and the Pasuk is not brought by the Gemara. All it says there is it references the fact that you can eat dry foods and it won't become Tameh, and so Rabbeinu Hanal tells you the background, why can dry Truma be eaten without becoming Tameh? He brings the Pasuk and says, you see from the Pasuk, that... Foods need to be, have become wet in order to become tummy. So here it's something very tangentially mentioned in the Gemara. It's not the main topic. The Gemara doesn't even bring the Pasuk that's the source for this halacha. And so Rabbeinu Hananel will provide at least that level of context. Often the context, the explanation that Rabbeinu Hananel provides is in explaining the logical flow of the Gemara. When the Gemara is somewhat terse and there's a discussion between various rabbis, a question, an answer, a challenge, Rabbeinu Hananel will add in just an extra couple of lines that can explain the thinking behind why there is a question in the Gemara, what, how a certain statement is supposed to answer a question or a challenge, things like that. But he definitely doesn't explain everything. One of Rabbeinu Hanal's catchphrases, so to speak, is something along the lines of Shar Hashmua Pshutahi. The rest of the section here in the Gemara that I'm explaining, it's simple. You don't need me to explain it to you anymore. I don't need to go into detail. You can figure it out based on what Rabbeinu Hanal has said. He'll, he'll say this or something like this once every couple of pages. So the fact that Rabbi Hananel says that a certain sugya, a certain section of the Gemara is simple, it shows that he has some expectations for what his reader will consider simple and what requires further elaboration. What I want to appreciate, though, is not just that Rabbi Hananel explains less than Rashi, but that Rabbi Hananel also could have gone a very different route. I mentioned earlier that Rabbi Hananel seems to understand the main purpose of Gemara study is in order to get to the bottom line of after the dust settles, after you see all the discussion in the Gemara, then what do you do as a matter of practical halacha? So what Rabbeinu Hananel could have done, if that was the objective of his commentary to get to practical halacha, Rabbeinu Hananel could have avoided explaining anything. He could have brought only that which is necessary to get to the halacha without quoting or giving explanations of the give and take, the back and forth that the rabbis of the Talmud, the Amoraim, have to go through in order to get to that final point. And you see that there is a commentator who does basically take that route, which is the Rif, Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi, who's going to be the subject of some episodes later on Be'ezra Hashem. The Rif quotes the Gemara that's necessary for Halacha and explains almost nothing. There are exceptions to that, I'll go into detail when we get up to talking about the Rif, but generally speaking, the Rif will just quote the Gemara verbatim, giving almost no explanation. Maybe here and there he'll translate a word that's very difficult, or if he thinks that others have explained the Gemara incorrectly, then he'll provide his own explanation, but that's rare. Usually he'll just quote the Gemara, and then at the end of the Gemara, he'll explain his reasoning as to why he would paskin, why he would decide the Halacha a certain way. But it's clear from the riff that the only thing he's interested in is explaining to you how to get to the bottom line halacha. Rabbi Hananel, it seems like, has somewhat of a balance between Rashi and the riff. On the one hand, he is trying to get to that bottom line halacha. That is one of the objectives of his, of his commentary. But he also wants to make sure you understand how the Gemara itself got there. He wants to make sure you can understand the flow of the Gemara, 
and especially be able to extract not just the main points of the halacha, but he wants to make sure that you know the main topic, so to speak, of that particular section of the Gemara. Sometimes he'll summarize, if there's a particularly complicated give and take, that the Iker Shmua, the main point of the section of the Gemara, is X. He's guiding you in how to read the Gemara, in addition to providing the final word of halacha. I see it as really a beautiful balance between Rashi's methodology and the methodology of the Rif. And you see that not only in content, in what he's actually explaining, but you can also see it in his style. Rashi's style is to have divrei hamaschil, to have starting words. He'll quote a couple of words from the Gemara and then tell you the explanation of those words, but then he'll skip to the next words of the Gemara that he's going to be commenting on. So you have to, when you're reading Rashi, you always have to keep sort of one finger on Rashi and one finger on the text of the Gemara and go back and forth between the words of the Amoraim themselves and the words of Rashi. But you can't just read Rashi straight. You won't be able to understand Rashi without also reading the Gemara that he's commenting upon. And the other side of the scale here, as I keep mentioning, is the riff. The riff quotes verbatim, word for word, the entire section of the Gemara that's necessary to understand his comments that he provides at the end of that section of the Gemara where he'll tell you how to learn the halacha. He quotes all the words of the Amoroim that you need, so that there's no need to look into the Gemara at all. You can easily just read the entire riff from beginning to end, and it's basically the same as just reading the Gemara together with the riff's additions explaining how to paskin halacha from this section of Gemara. Rabbeinu Hananel once again is doing something in between. Rabbeinu Hananel will quote the Gemara and paraphrase it, usually writing it in slightly simpler language to make it easier to understand, but from the fact that he'll also have lines like that I mentioned before, Shar that the rest of the section of the Gemara is simple, it shows that Rabbeinu Hananel is expecting you to also be learning the words of the Gemara, that you're reading his commentary along with the words of the Amoroim. And especially from the fact that Rabbeinu Hananel will tell you what, let's say, the Iker Shmaitza is, or he'll, he'll quote a line and then tell you its explanation. All of this makes it seem to me like the way Rabbeinu Hananel intended his commentary to be used was that you read one section of the Gemara and then you read his commentary to help you understand it. Or maybe vice versa, that you read his commentary so that when then when you go to the words of the Gemara, you'll understand the flow and Rabbeinu Hananel's position based on the Gemara itself. So once again, here too, just in style and the way it seems like Rabbeinu Hananel intended his reader to be using his commentary, it's this in-between balance between Rashi on the one hand, where you're going line by line in the Gemara and constantly have to go back and forth, the Rif on the other hand, who completely rewrites the Gemara, Rabbeinu Hananel it seems like intends for you to be reading a large portion of the Gemara, and then also reading how he paraphrases the Gemara. All of this, I think, makes Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary really wonderful. I feel like one of the goals of the podcast is that every time I talk about a particular Rishon, you'll be fooled into thinking that that's my favorite Rishon. So here, especially as I mentioned, Rabbeinu Hananel being the first rabbi to really write this comprehensive commentary to the sections of Talmud that are commonly studied, already as this first commentary, he's very middle of the road because Rabbeinu Hananel is providing context in the service of getting to the conclusions. So that's all I want to say about 
when Rabbeinu Hananel provides context to the Gemara, as in, when does he feel the need to comment to explain what the Gemara is talking about? You might get a better sense of this once I provide some examples in the next couple of minutes in order to get to a larger question regarding Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, which is, where did he get this information from? What were his sources? How does he know the context of the Gemara, the proper explanation behind those words? So this is a really big question. I'm going to talk about three groups of sources, ingredients, so to speak, that Rabbi Nuchananel used in cooking up his commentary. Number one are the writings of the Geonim. Number two are oral traditions, or Kabbalos, as Rabbi Nuchananel calls them, from the word lekabel to receive. And the third source is elsewhere in rabbinic literature, particularly the Talmud Yerushalmi. So first, let's talk about the Geonim. I mentioned earlier that we don't know much about Rabbeinu Hananel's education, but from all the evidence that we have, it doesn't seem like Rabbeinu Hananel studied in the Babylonian yeshivas in Baghdad, the yeshivas of the Geonim, but he knew a lot about the Torah that was taught there. So how did he know about that? I think... In the last episode, I mentioned correspondence between Rav Hai Gon and other rabbis of Kairuan, where Rabbi Nuchanana was living. We actually don't have, I don't think we have, direct evidence or direct letters to Rabbi Nuchanana or his father, Rav Hushiel, from Rav Hai Gon. But Rabbi Nuchanana certainly had a lot of Gaonic literature to work from. Often, where Rabbi Nuchanan quotes the Geonim explicitly, he'll say, Ra'inu, we have seen, as in, we have seen in the commentaries of the Geonim, he's reading them from written text, but he didn't hear them from word of mouth. In the two introductory episodes that I had for this season where I discussed the Geonim, I kept talking about how the Geonim didn't write commentaries. The truth is, I overstated this a little bit in order to get to the points I wanted to make. The truth is, there's plenty of Gaonic material that comments on the Gemara. A lot of them are from Teshuvas, are from Responsa, but some of them can be answering questions on a good 20-30 pages of Gemara that end up being basically a commentary. And by the time Rabbi Hananel comes along, we know that there are commentaries of Rav Hai Gon and his father Rav Shreira and his father-in-law Rav Shmuel ben Chafni. We even have some of these pieces of these commentaries of Rav Haigon or Rav Shreiragon that exist today. But there were probably a lot more that we have lost, that we don't have anymore, and we don't even know exactly what the scope of was of those commentaries. I mentioned that the modern scholars of Jewish history were really into Rabbeinu Hananel, and this is a big reason why. As this transitional figure between the Geonim and the Rishonim, Rabbeinu Hananel is our prime source for many traditions regarding the Gemara and what the Gemara means that came from the Geonim. This is, in fact, how many of the Rishonim looked to Rabbeinu Hananel as well. We have comments from the Rashba, the Balitosphos, the Rosh, the Meiri, referring to Rabbeinu Hananel as simultaneously the first of the Rishonim, but also the last of the Geonim. I'll quote one line from the Rashba, but I'll talk more about this in the next episode, that Rabbeinu Hananel Zal Shehoya Min HaGeonim, he was among the Geonim, Ubaki Bedivrei HaGeonim Zal Shekadmuhu, and he was an expert in the words of the Geonim who had preceded him. And so we have lots of times, we can't count them because we don't have a full set of Rabbeinu Hananel's original commentary, but probably it's in the hundreds of times where Rabbeinu Hananel quotes the Geonim explicitly. 
Today, thanks to the Cairo Geniza and similar sources, we have access to many more words of the Geonim, and we can find that Rabbeinu Hananel is often quoting the Geonim without mentioning them. Here and there, you can even find a chunk of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary that quotes the Geonim word for word, or something very close to it. And in some cases, we don't even know if there's, let's say, a fragment from the Geniza, and we can't even tell if it's from Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary or of Haigon's commentary or even a tshuva, let's say, of one of the Geonim, because their words really do overlap in many cases. For example, there's about half a page of commentary in Mesecha Shabbos about what kind of parchment to use for tefillin and mezuzahs, and it seems like there was a tshuva of Rav Haigon on the same topic, and if you go to the new edition of Rabinu Hananel's commentary on Shabbos, published by Vakshal or Lev Sameach, you'll see that in the footnotes there, he's like not even sure which lines are from Rabbeinu Hananel and which lines are from Rav Haigon. So here, maybe I should mention something. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's very relevant to all of the Rishonim that we're going to be talking about, which is that Rishonim and medieval writers in general, not even just Jewish writers, but medieval writers had a very different idea of what plagiarism means. The Rishonim will all quote earlier sources without attribution, and they just expect their readers to know that this is what they do. They're not fooling anyone. This has to do probably with medieval attitudes towards knowledge and creativity generally. As I said, I don't want to talk too much more about this, even though it is an interesting topic, other than to point out that there is nothing weird at all with Rabbeinu Hananel just copying commentaries of the Geonim into his own commentary without citing them. This is what all the Rishonim do with their prede predecessors. They're not fooling anyone with this, but unfortunately it does make the historian's job very difficult when they try to tease out what the original source of an idea might be. And especially when it comes to Rabbeinu Hanana, let's say, to answer the question of just how much of Rabbeinu Hanana's commentary is original and how much of it comes from the Geonim. A couple of years ago, someone named Yosef Mordechai Dubovich wrote a whole doctoral dissertation to answer this question, systematically comparing Rabbeinu Hanana's commentary to a few chapters of the Talmud where we also have access to the commentary of the Geonim, of Rav Haigon or Rav Shri Ragon, on those chapters. By the way, thanks to Eliezer Brot for helping me get a hold of this dissertation. It's really great. And he shows there that Rabbi Nuchananel was clearly well aware of these commentaries and made good use of them. But at the same time, he also shows a lot of independence. In style and in scope, as I've been talking about before, that's what makes him the first of the Rishonim. And also, he'll even argue on the Geonim, as I'll talk about in a minute. I think, in the end, we'll probably never be able to come up with an exact number, like what percent of Rabbeinu Hanan's commentary is taken from the Geonim and what percent is original, because we don't know how much Geonic material Rabbeinu Hanan had in front of him. As I mentioned, that's what makes Rabbeinu Hanan so valuable. He's preserving these Geonic teachings that might otherwise have been lost. And we know some of them really were lost, so we can't go back and see what his sources were. The main point I want to bring out here is just that Rabbeinu Hananel made lots of use of the Geonim, whether or not he's quoting them by name. In fact, when he does say that he's quoting the Geonim, where he references their commentaries, it's very often to argue upon them. Sometimes he argues on the Geonim because he has alternative traditions as to how to explain the Gemara, which I'll talk about in another two minutes. But sometimes he's arguing them on them simply because of his own reasoning, from his own read of the Gemara, that he thinks is a better alternative to the Geonim's explanation. 
There are a couple of places where Rabbi Nuchananel doesn't even quote the Geonim. He just says, like I'll quote here from his commentary to Yoma Daflamid Gimel 33b. We have seen that our rabbis, the Geonim, have given an alternative explanation to this passage. But there's a response to this. In other words, there's a question on their interpretation. Therefore, we decided not to write it. Meaning, he's not quoting the Geonim in this instance because he thinks that their explanation is wrong. He challenges it. He just wants to make you aware, I guess, of the fact that there are alternatives out there, but they are incorrect, in his opinion. And you can find similar statements in other places in his writings. As I mentioned, I'll keep going back to this. Hopefully, if you are interested in seeing these sources, you can easily get a hold of the source sheet that I made that goes along with this episode. All in all, Rabbeinu Hananel relied heavily on the Geonim, but he did not feel beholden to them. He felt free to argue on them whenever he thought necessary. And this is beyond the fact that he made a major innovation just by the very commentary itself, which was unprecedented in its style and in its comprehensiveness. He became the model for, in a way, all future commentaries on the Gemara, even down to this present day. And so this gets us back to the statement of the Chazon Ish that I read in the opening section to this episode. Earlier works of the Rishonim are more likely to get us to the truth of what the Gemara means. They even have greater sanctity. There's something special and holy about the teachings that are a thousand or more years old. Rabbi Nuchananel also felt this way. He gave great significance to the ancient teachings. There's even one place in his commentary. I don't want to get into the details, and I will think I'll talk more about this next episode, about his attitude towards his predecessors. But there's one place that's quoted by the Rashbam to Baba Basra, where he notes that a halachic position would not have been changed or challenged if it was sourced in an ancient teaching. Yet, when it comes to explaining the Gemara, that's something that all of his teachers also, they innovated based on how they read the Gemara. And in these areas, he's not afraid to argue on his predecessors. And he's certainly not afraid to venture out into new territory and make meaningful and original contributions to Torah scholarship whose impacts reverberate to this very day. Now I want to talk about Rabbeinu Hananel's oral traditions, the second category of sources that he used to build his own commentary. In a way, these are even more interesting than Rabbeinu Hananel's use of the Geonim, because number one, they're likely to be more ancient if they came from teachings that were passed down from teacher to student. They might be going back all the way to the time of the Gemara, as opposed to the Geonim, who may have just interpreted the Gemara based on their own reasoning. And also, again, basically like what I keep talking about as to why Rabbeinu Hananel is so interesting, because they are also more mysterious. Where did Rabbeinu Hananel get these traditions from, if not from the Geonim? Yet, Rabbeinu Hananel clearly distinguishes between these two sets of knowledge, between the Geonim on the one hand and his traditions on the other hand, because there are many places in his commentary where he'll say, the Geonim say one thing, but we have received something else. We have received an alternative explanation. In fact, there's one place, unfortunately it's not so easy to find, it's in a quote from the Sefer Haner by Rav Zechariah Agamati in his commentary on the Rif, where he quotes Rabbeinu Hananel to Baba Basra Daf Samech Gimel Amad Aleph, where Rabbeinu Hananel quotes 
two different explanations of the Gemara. He says, why is he doing this? Because this is heavenly work of writing commentaries, and so he's going to quote more than one explanation from two different sources. One, he says, I've written for you in my commentary, he's saying, what I have received as a tradition from my teachers from their mouth to my ear, and I've also written the explanation of the geonim that I have seen. So here he differentiates between the two, and this is the key to what I mentioned a few minutes ago, that when he refers to the explanations of the geonim, he almost always refers to it as something that he saw, as opposed to the words of his teachers, those are things that he had heard. But you could imagine saying that Rabbi Nuchananel had traditions that are different from those of the Go'onim. The Go'onim, who they were sitting in the yeshivas of the Amoraim, the authors of the Gemara, they were sitting in those same institutions and they were responsible for passing down the words of the Gemara. So how could it be that Rabbi Nuchananel had traditions different from the Go'onim? Shouldn't the Go'onim be the authorities on what the Amoraim had meant? So Shraga Abramson, I mentioned he has this big book on Rabbi Nuchananel's commentary, he thinks that even when Rabbeinu Hananel refers to these kabbalos, to these traditions, he must be referring to things that he knows from the geonim. And when he distinguishes between them, it just means that some geonim say one way, but we have a tradition from other geonim that say another way. He's not saying that he's using some non-geonic source. I don't want to take a stand on this question. It's a really big, and as I said, somewhat controversial topic of especially the Jews of Italy and Central Europe, and where they got their Torah traditions from. Was it from the Geonim, or maybe they had alternative sources, maybe there was even another yeshiva of the Geonim. As I've mentioned, for this entire season, I'm going to be ignoring all of Europe except for Muslim Spain. We're pretending that doesn't exist, and I'll hopefully, Ezra Shem, come back to this problem in another season. But just getting back to Rabbeinu Hananel, I did put a bunch of examples on the source sheet so that if you're interested, you can look at how he differentiates between his traditions and the Geonim in a couple of different cases. Something else, though, that I think is really cool that you see from these examples is that wherever these traditions may have come from, if Rabbeinu Hananel mentioned a disagreement between his own traditions and the Geonim, he sides with his traditions. And it seems like he's much more willing to accept any of those oral teachings from his own teachers and is much more hesitant to argue upon them than he is to argue against the Geonim generally when he quotes them. Again, as I mentioned, we have to sometimes quote Rabbi Nuchananel from more obscure sources since we don't have a full version of his commentary, but there's one place in the Sefer HaMachriya of Rabbi Yushaya Mitrani. I put it on the source sheet, it's at the end of Simen Chaf Aleph, where he writes that really, really, really he has a problem with how his teachers paskin a certain halacha. He says, Lule ha if not for the tradition that we've received, lefi aniuseinu, according to our poor understanding, that's just an expression of humility, hachi have paskinan, we would have paskin this, we would have decided the halacha a certain way, nota, because that's how our opinion leans, mihu, however, Rabbi Nuchanan says, lo samchinan ela akabala dbiyadan, we only rely on the traditions that we have in our hands that he had received from his teachers. So what are the nature of these traditions? I keep talking about them, traditions or teachings from the Goanim, 
And I mentioned that when it comes to teachings of the Gonim, especially, those are explanations of the Gemara. That the words of the Gemara might be a little bit obscure, the reasoning behind the Gemara is obscure, it's not clear what the Amoraim are referring to, how the argument flows, and that's the context that the Geonim and these traditions come to supply. But there's also another type of context that is supplied by these traditions in particular, which is to give some background to the Gemara that otherwise you would have definitely not have been able to figure out yourself. And it's not just a simple matter of interpreting or reasoning through what the Gemara says that in theory you could have done based on your own intuitions. Sometimes it's an explanation to a word or phrase in the Gemara that the Gemara is referring to something else, but it doesn't say what else it's referring to. It's just like, for example, there's a case in Meseches Ksuvis where the Gemara says that a woman is only going to be prohibited to her husband if she engages in adultery, if it's Kamaise Shehaya, if it's like the matter that had happened. I'm not going to go into the details, but that's all the Gemara says, the matter that happened. So what matter, what story is the Gemara talking about? The Gemara doesn't say. So Rabbeinu Hananel quotes a tradition that it's referring to one of the famous cases of adultery in the Tanakh, the case of David and Bacheva, which, of course, may not really be adultery, as I said, not getting into the details. But at least when the Gemara says, Maisa Shahaya, we don't know what Maisa, what story the Gemara is referring to, so there it's really important to see what are the traditions of Rabbeinu Hananel, where he likely had teachings passed down from teacher to student over many, many generations of just very simply, what is the Gemara referring to? But there are also some that if you did not know about Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, you wouldn't even know that there was anything missing here. My absolute favorite example of this is something it appears twice in Shas, once in Erevin and once in Tainus. On the source sheet, I put Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary to Erevin, Daf Mem Aleph Amad Aleph, 41a, where the Gemara has a discussion about what to do if a fast day, in particular Tisha B'Av, falls out on a Friday. Do you fast the entire day, or is it better to eat before Shabbos begins so that you are not fasting going into Shabbos, which is considered disrespectful to the Shabbos? So there's a discussion of this in the Gemara, and the Gemara brings a story about Rabbi Akiva, that Rabbi Akiva ate an egg towards the end of the day when Tish Abav fell on Friday, and therefore he was not fasting by the time Shabbos began, even though that day was Tisha B'Av, which is normally a fast day. Fine, that's the Gemara, and that seems like why the Gemara is quoting this story of Rabbi Akiva in this context. Now, Rabbeinu Hananel quotes a tradition which completely upends the meaning of the Gemara, or the meaning of this story, I should say. Rabbeinu Hananel says, Kabbalah biadenu, we have a tradition. Ki Rabbi Akiva be'osa sha'a mistukan haya. That Rabbi Akiva... At this time, in this story, when Tisha B'Av fell on Friday, Rabbi Akiva was dangerously ill. And the doctors brought Rabbi Akiva, they brought him to eat to eat an egg below Melach, a whole egg, unsalted, at the end of the day. Rabbi Yehuda, who's quoting this story, didn't realize that that's what was going on. Therefore, he relied upon what he had seen. He saw that Rabbi Akiva was eating towards the end of the day. 
thinking that means that if Tisha B'Av falls on Friday, Rabbi Akiva held that you shouldn't fast the entire day, but But Rabbi Yehuda, the Tana, did not know the reason why Rabbi Akiva had done this, why he had eaten towards the end of that Friday of Tisha B'Av, and he was actually mistaken. So the tradition is against the simple reading of the Tanoim even, Rabbeinu Hanal is coming to say, you read this Gemara, you think that it's saying that Rabbi Akiva holds that you should not fast on a Tishabov that falls on Friday, and Rabbeinu Hanal is saying, our tradition is, that's actually not what was going on. What was actually going on is that Rabbi Akiva was sick, he was eating because better to eat and make sure you survive and not put yourself in danger to fast the entire day of Tishabav. And so what ends up being is that Rabbeinu Hananel's tradition is just mind-blowing to me, completely reverses the simple reading of the Gemara. And to Rabbeinu Hananel, this is even more reliable, his oral tradition is even more reliable than how the Gemara itself seems to interpret this story about Rabbi Akiva. To me, this is just absolutely incredible. It's quoted by a lot of the Rishonim, and this is something that in that passage of the Chazonish I mentioned, where the Chazonish says it must be that this is certainly a tradition that goes back all the way through the time of the Tanoim, because this is something that nobody could ever make up. And as I mentioned, Rabbi Nuchanano relies very heavily on these traditions. He seems to accept their authority even more than he accepts the authority of the interpretations of the Geonim. As far as I can tell, there's only one case where Rabbi Nuchanano seems to argue on the explanations that he heard from his teachers. That is in Meseches Tanis, Daf Chaf Beis on Beis, 22b. And the reason why Rabbi Nuchananel is offering an alternative interpretation than his teachers do is because She'ra'inu Yerushalmi perish acheres. Because there's an explicit Gemara in the Talmud Yerushalmi which provides a different explanation and what has more authority than his traditions are the sages themselves in the Talmud Yerushalmi. So that gets us to category number three of where did Rabbeinu Hananel build his commentary from? What were the ingredients? I mentioned the Geonim, the traditions, and now I'll go on to number three, the Yerushalmi. Something that many Rishonim, Achronim scholars have observed is that Rabbeinu Hananel makes a lot of use of the Talmud Yerushalmi. It's something that really makes Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary special. Of course, it's special because it's the first, so everything he does is going to be an innovation, but this is something that many later commentaries did not do nearly as much. But Rabbeinu Hananel quotes the Yerushalmi many, many, many times. It's hard to go five pages or so of Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, even less than that probably, without encountering some quote from the Talmud Yerushalmi. And that's not the only other source in Chazal that he uses in order to interpret the Gemara, the Talmud Bavli, which he, he is writing his commentary upon. He also uses Midrashay Halacha, like the Torah's Kohanim, but his use of the Yerushalmi is consistent and really stands out. Especially because, just like when it comes to the Geonim, that he doesn't always tell you that he's quoting from the Geonim, it's also the case that he doesn't always tell you that he's interpreting a Gemara based on a parallel passage in the Talmud Yerushalmi. But when you look closely at his commentary and you look at parallels in Yerushalmi, you can see that that is clearly the case. He clearly has a teaching from the Yerushalmi in mind when he is explaining a certain passage of the Gemara, even if he doesn't quote it. It's of course not always so easy to tell, 
if he doesn't say so explicitly, Yisrael Tashma in his chapter on Rabbeinu Hananel, I mentioned in his book about the Rishonim, he has a really nice example or two where it's very clear that Rabbeinu Hananel is basing himself on the Yerushalmi. But I actually want to talk about an example that I think is really cool. I have not seen anyone discuss it in academic or rabbinic literature, which might mean that I'm totally off here and I'm really missing something major. But as you'll see, I think it's a really cool example anyway, because it gets to a question that is literally Judaism 101. What would be in the introductory course on Judaism? How the religion is practiced today. So at some point, you would go through, the teacher would go through, let's say, the Jewish life cycle and the Jewish calendar year. So you start with Rosh Hashanah, is the first day of the Jewish calendar year, and then 10 days later is Yom Kippur. And those 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those 10 days are known as the Aseres Yemei Teshuva, the 10 days of repentance, that these 10 days are particularly auspicious days for doing Teshuva, for self-improvement and however you want to understand that. It's the subject of thousands and thousands of hours of sermons that can be heard in Jewish schools and synagogues, etc. during those 10 days. As I said, Judaism 101. Now, where did this idea come from? What's the earliest source that we have that those 10 days between and including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are 10 days that are auspicious for teshuva, for repentance. I'm pretty sure that such a concept does not appear in the Talmud Bavli. There is, and this is much earlier, that the Mishnah clearly identifies Yom Kippur with teshuva, but not those block of 10 days. Instead, there is actually a passage in the Talmud Bavli identifying those 10 days as being auspicious for prayer, in particular a type of prayer to annul heavenly decrees, and you can see how that might be related to teshuva, but the association with the 10 days of teshuva, as far as I can tell, does not exist in the Talmud Bavli. But there is a passage that is associated with those 10 days of teshuva, and again, this passage itself might even be quoted in the Judaism 101 class, a statement from Rabbi Yochanan, this is in the Talmud Bavli, it's in Meseches Rosh Hashanah, Daf Tes Zayin, and I won't read it in Hebrew until the last line, but the Gemara says, quoting Rabbi Yochanan, that on Rosh Hashanah there are three books or three ledgers that are written up in the heavens, one of Rishoim Gemurin, of the wicked, one of Sadikim Gemurin, of the righteous, the Echad Shel Benunim, and one of the intermediates, of everyone else. Everyone who's written in the book of Tzadikim, of the righteous, they get written on Rosh Hashanah for life. Everyone who is written in the ledger of the Rishoim, of the wicked, they are written and sealed for death. And when it comes to everyone else, the Gemara says, they are hanging in the balance, their fates are not yet determined, from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, and then on Yom Kippur, Zahu, if they have merited, Nichtovin Lachayim, they are written for life. Lo Zahu, if they have not merited, Nichtovin Lemisa, then they are written for death. As I said, this is super well known, Judaism 101. It's the basis of a well known piyut, a prayer said in many congregations on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But if you read it carefully, this passage does not say anything about Teshuvah. It just says that the fates 
of all the in-betweeners is determined between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur based on whether or not they have merited. But, and I've looked at all of the girsos, all of the different versions of this Gemara that's available at the Freeburg Manuscript Project, and none of them say anything about Teshuva. But when the Rambam quotes this Gemara, and the Rambam in his Hilchus Teshuva is very well known, the Rambam says what determines a person's fate in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's whether or not the person has done a proper teshuva. And there's even a somewhat well-known, obviously it's not as well-known as the Rambam himself, but there's a somewhat well-known question of Rav Itzela Petzberger, one of the great figures associated with the Musser movement, of why precisely the Rambam is mentioning teshuva in this context, if a person is exactly balanced between good deeds and bad deeds, then really any good deed should be able to tip the scale. Not getting into that, just getting into this question of what is the source? Where did the Rambam get this from? And because this is an episode about Rabbeinu Hananel, you already know what I'm going to say. The answer is, if you look in Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, when he explains this passage of the Gemara in his commentary to Rosh Hashanah, Daf Tes Zayin Amabez, Rabbeinu Hananel says that there are these three books, the book of the Benonim Talim in Rosh Hashanah Ad Yom HaKippurim, their fates are hanging between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Zohu Ve'asu Teshuva. He adds in those two crucial lines, if they've merited and performed Teshuva, then Nichtavin L'chaim. Then they are written for life, Lo zachu la'asos tshuva, if they have not merited to perform teshuva, nichtavin lemisa. Here we see Rabbeinu Hananel, just like the Rambam, places this idea of doing teshuva during those 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as the determining factor of how people merit to be judged favorably in between these days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And, once again, you know the context that I'm talking to about this. Where did Rabbeinu Hanada get this from? I mentioned that there, as far as I'm aware, there is no source in the Talmud Bavli for these Aserasimei Teshuvah, for there being 10 days of Teshuvah, but there are sources in the Talmud Yerushalmi, where this same passage of Rabbi Yochanan about these three books, it's also quoted in the Talmud Yerushalmi, Torah Shoshana, Perak Aleph Halacha Gimel, it's even a bit more expressive, when it comes to the Benonim, the intermediates, the Yerushalmi says, Kvarnitan lahen aseres yemei teshuva. The ten days of teshuva are given to them, Shebein Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippurim, between these days, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, im asu teshuva. If they have done teshuva during those ten days of teshuva, nichtovim im hatzadikim. The Yerushalmi says, then they are written along with the righteous. So here you have, as I said, I have not seen anyone identify this as a place where Rabbeinu Hananel is basing himself on the Yerushalmi, but I really think that that's what Rabbeinu Hananel is doing here. He is blending the Yerushalmi and the Bavli by showing that what the Talmud Bavli does not say, it just says the word Zahu, if they've merited, but what does that mean they merited? What it means is that they did Teshuva. How does Rabbeinu Hananel know this? because that's what it says explicitly in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And I don't know if Rabbeinu Hananel was the source for the Rambam, or the Talmud Yerushalmi itself was the source for the Rambam. But either way, as I said, this is something that's just so basic to Judaism, and I feel like here we have a beautiful example of where Rabbeinu Hananel is explaining the Gemara based on the Talmud Yerushalmi. 
So now, once I've spoken about the three sources that Rabbi Nuchananel uses to provide context to the Gemara, his three sources being the written commentaries of the Geonim, the oral traditions that he had from his teachers, and the Talmud Yerushalmi, that third source already gets us into the next great achievement of Rabbi Nuchananel's commentary, which is providing the Gemara with cohesiveness with bringing together different passages of the Gemara, and I can say that even more expansively, different passages or teachings of the sages more generally, bringing them together into one cohesive whole. And I think that this is something that Rabbeinu Hananel really does provide that's underappreciated, because it's often very subtle. Rabbeinu Hananel doesn't always tell us that he is explaining a Gemara in a certain way, in order so that it fits with a gem- another Gemara in a different place. And I couldn't think of any simple example to demonstrate that, so I'm not going to. I put in a few places on the source sheet, though, where Rabbi Nuchananel is explicit about it, where he'll say that he is explaining passages of the Gemara in ways that are consistent with passages in other places of the Gemara. And just like he sees harmony between various sections of the Talmud Bavli, I think that his view of the Talmud Yerushalmi is very similar. He doesn't usually talk about the Talmud Yerushalmi whenever he brings it as if it's arguing on the Talmud Bavli. He's usually bringing the Talmud Yerushalmi in order to explain, provide added context to the Talmud Bavli, as I showed in the example with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that he thinks that those additional words that are in the Talmud Yerushalmi to explain what a person is supposed to do in order to merit life in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that's just explaining a little bit more what the Talmud Bavli is also intending. Rabbi Nuchananel sees harmony between the various Talmuds and the various passages of the Gemara as well. You just get this impression from almost everywhere that he finds and sticks together different sources from the Gemara, Here and there, he will note that there do seem to be contradictions between different passages of the Gemara, but that doesn't seem like something that he thinks is very common. Every now and then, he'll mention, Kashalon, I have a question on this Gemara, because a parallel source seems to say something different. So every now and then, there'll be a question on the Gemara, but sometimes there are just questions on the Gemara's logic as well. I don't think, and here we can compare Rabbeinu Hananel to the Bali Tosos, I don't think that Rabbeinu Hananel had anything like that view of the Bali Tosvos, who, at least the impression you get from their writings, is that contradictions between various passages in the Gemara is a problem that needs to be solved. You have to explain why one Gemara might be talking about some different context, or maybe it's a different opinion. But I think, all in all, Rabbeinu Hananel saw coherence between the various passages of the Gemara, and sometimes that even comes out in how he determines the halacha. And here I want to, I do want to show a source that I think this is one of my favorite pieces of Rabbeinu Hananel. It may not be exactly Judaism 101, but it is something pretty well known to Orthodox Jews, Anyone who's been through an Orthodox Jewish day school can probably tell you what's the proper way to separate things on Shabbos. Generally, the Shabbos comes with a prohibition to separate individual items from a mixture. That's one of the 39 malachos, the 39 productive acts, which are prohibited on Shabbos. But it is permitted if you adhere to three conditions. If you separate something 
miad for immediate use, biyad, and you don't use a specialized utensil, you use something like your hand, and you're separating ochel mitoch psoles, you're taking the good thing from the bad thing. You're pulling out the object that you want. So where does this halacha come from? It is, of course, the position of Rabbeinu Hananel. I say of course because otherwise why would I be bringing it up in this episode? And in fact, the Egle Tal, the classic book on the conceptual underpinnings for the laws of Shabbos, points out that this is not agreed upon by all of the Rishonim, but this is how it's paskin, how the halacha is decided in the Shulchan Aruch, according to Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, that all of these three conditions are necessary for proper separation of a mixture on Shabbos. And how did Rabbeinu Hananel get to this halachic position? I don't want to go into too much detail here. It does make for a good shear, I think. But I'll simplify and say, just for the sake of this podcast, that there are basically three different statements in the Gemara. One statement that implies that separating is only permitted if you do it by hand. One statement in the Gemara that implies that separating is only permitted if you do it for immediate use, la'alter. And another statement in the Gemara which seems to imply that it's only permitted if done by collecting the desired object from the mixture instead of taking the things you don't want out of the mixture. And Rabbeinu Hananel comes to his psak halacha that all of these three conditions are necessary because he holds that all of these three passages in the Gemara, these three different opinions, although, as I said, I'm simplifying a little bit here, but the general idea is that there are these three different things in the Gemara, and none of them are arguing upon each other. All of them are true, and all of them are necessary for proper separating on Shabbos. This is also just a great passage in Rabbeinu Hananel because it demonstrates a couple of other really interesting things about his commentary. Like, for example, he also throws in one line that the word le'alter immediately, what it means here in the laws of Shabbos is not exactly the same as what it means in the laws of Gittin, of divorce documents that were lost and, and found. In this passage, he collects from a bunch of different places throughout the Talmud Bavli in order to get to his... And Rabbeinu Hananel also here provides the logic behind these halachas. How come separating a mixture is prohibited on Shabbos, but it would be permitted if done under these three conditions? Why would that be? And as I said, I just want to say the bare minimum general idea, not go into the details, but Rabbeinu Hananel says what's prohibited on Shabbos is meleches machsheves substantially productive activity, but not acts that are miderach achila, just the way of eating. This is just the type of thing that you would do on your plate. It's just like how, I mean, doesn't say this, but I think the logic here is the same. It's just like how chewing your food is not a problem of grinding, which otherwise would be prohibited on Shabbos. So too, just picking food off of your plate and putting it in your mouth, that cannot be that that is prohibited on the Shabbos. So how do we draw the line between what's considered substantially productive activity, malacha, and what's something that's permitted because it's the way of eating? It's by adhering to these three conditions that Rabbeinu Hananel brings out from the sources of the Gemara. This is just big picture. What Rabbeinu Hananel says that ends up being something that is well known to Jews that have gone through the Orthodox Jewish day schools, I think. This is pretty widely accepted and widely taught, and you see the source of it is from Rabbeinu Hananel's view 
of how different passages in the Gemara fit together. All right, now I've spent quite a while talking about all the awesome and amazing things you can get out of Rabbi Hananel's commentary, and I still haven't even gotten to the best part, at least what many of the other Rishonim consider to be the best part. Why are they quoting Rabbeinu Hananel? It's almost always because they are quoting his Psak Halacha, his final word on how the Halacha is to be decided. At least, that's true of the Spanish Rishonim. As I keep saying, Ashkenazi Rishonim do not exist. Yet. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of talking about Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary, this is how he views the primary purpose of Talmud Torah, of Talmud study, is to provide this third thing that I mentioned the Gemara is missing, the Gemara is missing context and cohesiveness, but it's especially missing conclusions. And Rabbeinu Hananel diligently at the end of every single section of Gemara, Rabbeinu Hanana will tell us how do we paskin lahalacha? What is the practical implications of this passage of Talmud? If there's machlokas, he'll tell you the halacha is like so and so. And he'll often explain why. He'll tell you that the reason why the halacha is like so and so is because, for example, the Gemara seems to be paying more attention to that position, giving it more weight. Usually, Rabbeinu Hanana will provide some reference to general rules, like the general rule is that if there's a dispute between Rava and Abaye, we always follow Rava except in six cases. And Rabbeinu Hanana has many, many of these rules. Some of them we know from the Gemara itself, some of them we know from the Goonim, and some of them seem to be probably not unique to Rabbeinu Hanana, as in he probably didn't make them up, but we don't necessarily have another source for this rule of how to decide the halacha in various cases. It, a lot of them are collected by the Aruch, the Sefer Aruch written by Rab Nason of Rome, which is kind of like a Talmudic encyclopedia written just a few generations after Rabbeinu Hananel, really just about one generation after Rabbeinu Hananel, who quotes a lot of material from him. And this is how Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary really had a huge impact on how halacha is decided on what rules we use to reason from the Gemara to get to practical halacha. And even though this is one of the biggest ways that the Rishonim use Rabbeinu Hanal's commentary, that's pretty much all I'm going to talk about it. I don't think that these discussions lend themselves so well to podcasts. If I just give you a whole list of rules, like if there's a certain dispute between two different rabbis of the Talmud, who do we follow? It happens to be, I'll mention one thing about how Rabbeinu Hanal paskins halacha, how he decides what the practical halacha is. Some historians, like Shear, for example, I mentioned who wrote one of those first articles, those first academic articles to ever be written on Rabbeinu Hananel, talks about if Rabbeinu Hananel was, or I should say, had more of a tendency to be machmer, to be stringent, versus to be lenient. I really don't like those kinds of questions. I think it all depends upon your frame of reference. But I do want to quote Rabbeinu Hananel in this regard. This is a comment of Rabbeinu Hananel that, at least the way it's been restored to Rabbeinu Hananel's commentary on Mesechas Brachos, to Daf Chavzayin Amun Beis 27b, where Rabbeinu Hananel refers to the practice of many communities, which is to Davin Mariv, the evening prayer, even before it's technically nighttime. Rabbeinu Hananel writes, V'chei that seems to be permissible, Minhag, that is the custom, the Alda Anasamich, and that's what we rely on. 
v'hameshana, and anyone who says differently, nikra hediot. You're called, hediot comes from the same word as, as idiot, it means you're not a scholar. You don't know what you're talking about. Umeanios daitum, from their poor minds, osin Torah keshte toros, they make the Torah like two Torahs, meaning that they deviate from the accepted practice and end up doing something differently. Umachmirin bekalos, they are stringent in light matters, umekilin bechamuros, and they end up becoming lenient in strict matters. So you see, Rabbi Nuchananel is, number one, putting weight on an accepted practice. And number two, the reason why I brought this out is because Rabbi Nuchananel wants to make sure, like every posek, every person who is deciding halacha, that halacha must be decided with the appropriate sense of priority, of knowing what is important in deciding a halacha and what is less important, when to be stringent and when to be lenient. And this, to me, seems as good of a statement as any in explaining, is Rabbeinu Hananel more stringent? Is he more lenient? What kind of a posek is he? The answer is, he is a balanced posek. I'm sure every posek would probably say that about themselves, that they know when to be strict and when to be lenient. So altogether, I think we can zoom out and see how this picture of Rabbeinu Hananel emerges. Rabbeinu Hananel is a man of balance and harmony. He sees a need for a commentary on the Gemara. He sees a need for conclusions to be explained how to get halacha from the Gemara, which is the most important aspect of learning Gemara, according to him. But instead of writing a commentary that explains all the Gemara, or a commentary that just gets to the final conclusion, he balances between the two, making sure that the reader understands the main point of the give and take of the Gemara, and can therefore paskin halacha accordingly. Even in his style, the way in which he wrote his commentary, there's a balance between making sure you're reading the words of the Gemara line by line along with his commentary, versus dispensing with the Gemara entirely, Rabbeinu Hananel, again, is a balance between the two. Rephrasing the Gemara when it's difficult, in order to make it easier for you to understand, but skipping over some passages telling you, Pshutahi, it's simple, and you should figure that out yourself. When it comes to quoting earlier commentaries, he used all the material that he had available to him, quotes from them liberally when he believes them to be correct, but is not afraid to reject the explanations of the Geonim if he thinks he can provide a better explanation. And for me, when I read Rabbeinu Hanan's commentary, I see not just balance, but harmony. He sees how the various passages from different places in the Gemara and different statements of the various Amoroim to be in concert with one another, at least as much as possible. He interprets one Gemara in light of another Gemara, assuming that there's no contradiction between them, and will often interpret the Talmud Bavli in light of the Talmud, Yer Talmud Yerushalmi, again assuming that they are really all getting to the same thing. And when it comes to how he paskins halacha, he does so again with what he sees as the proper balance between the priorities of when to be strict and when to be lenient. Altogether, I think this gives us a great picture of the methods of Rabbeinu Hananel, the man, this person, who contributed so much to Torah scholarship thanks to this revolutionary commentary. And in the next episode, we're going to look at 
more examples of what that contribution was and how it impacted Torah scholarship for many, many generations to come. I hope you'll join me next time for the next episode of the podcast, part two of Rabbeinu Hananel, the commentary and its legacy.